This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Most parents of a daughter, and that includes me several times over, want to instill in her the desire to pursue her passions, a sense of pride in her own innate talents and accomplishments, and a clear understanding that her own self-worth should not be based on whether or not she would one day be involved in a romantic relationship. So, so what do you do, and this happens to a lot of people, when one day you realize that despite all your efforts to dress your daughter in gender-neutral clothes and to not have her be stereotyped in one way or the other, that you wake up and you see that she's become a hopeless, Disney-worshipping, princess-obsessed, sequin, tutu-wearing three-year-old. How do these things happen? And then, of course, things get much more complicated when you start actually looking at some of this princess stuff and you realize that so many of these princesses are defined by and, and it focuses almost entirely on obtaining the love and devotion of a prince. And then, of course, there's the most complicated part of all, which is that kids love these things, especially little girls love these princess stories. But how do we as parents resist the impulse to control our daughter's preferences while empowering them to see that there's a lot more to life than just getting the guy? talk about how to raise a strong girl even if she refuses to wear anything but pink when our show continues right after this. My name is Dale Pazinski. I volunteer with United Way to help the homeless in my community learn computer skills and build a basic resume. I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live united. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Devorah Blacker, who is the author of The Feminist's Guide to Raising a Little Princess, How to Raise a Girl Who's Authentic, Joyful, and Fearless, Even If She Refuses to Wear Anything But a Pink Tutu. Devorah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've got to say, uh, I have three daughters, and I was so proud of myself as a parent when they started tearing their heads off of their Barbies and they refused to wear anything pink or anything tutu related and the third one changed that and i thought well, how did how did this happen i mean where where do these things come from and, and we'll talk about that but like there, there's some of it's in the water and, yeah and some of it i don't know what it is what's your theory well i was surprised that a daughter who was my daughter um did not tear the heads off the Barbies and to not reject things that were pink and princessy and just the opposite. She was um, very intensely attracted to the whole princess and pink culture at around age, age three. And why do I think it happens? You know, after, after um, it started, I started to read a lot about the subject and there's a percentage of girls that gender identifies strongly and that is 
a social science explanation for why. I think there have always been girls who like pink and princesses. I never was one. My sister was. But now it's, um, it's really being encouraged and exacerbated by the heavy marketing of, of princesses, um, which is a more recent phenomenon. That didn't happen when I was growing up. No, well, they still had Disneyland, and there, there still was Snow White, and and I mean, those have been around yes. since the since the thirties and forties. Sure, and princess stories have been around, for, for you know, forever, right? From from before then, but this there's a the marketing a few years ago, I don't know about ten years ago, maybe more. Um, Peggy Orenstein wrote a book called Cinderella Ate My Daughter, and in it she reported something really fascinating which is that in the year 2000, a Disney executive went to a Disney on Ice show and saw girls wearing homemade princess dresses. And if you can imagine this, very recently in the year 2000, they were not making princess dresses for girls. Disney was not. And he saw an, uh, a marketing opportunity. And here we are in 2017, and the... Disney princess brand, I think, is the biggest brand or the second biggest brand after Star Wars. They alternate. Um, It was just this huge, explosive phenomenon of marketing Disney princesses to little girls. And, of course, not just the dresses, but the clothing, the accessories, the water bottles, the, you know, the temporary tattoos or whatever. (laughs) It's endless. And also the, the, the way that the toy stores are gendered, like you walk into a toy store and half of it is blue and half of it is pink. And um, I, it was not like that when I was growing up. The, the toys were more gender neutral. The clothing was more gender neutral. So these things are more recent phenomenon. And that, and that um, coupled with this tendency that some girls and some boys have to love pink and princesses, um, is what creates this phenomenon today of of these little girls who are just princess crazy. Yeah, you know, I'll I tell don't you. Know how, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that completely. But there, there's also in there somewhere, there's some biological thing going on. And I, I remember, I've done a lot of lot of looking at this, looking at gender roles and 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 looking at, at you know, nature versus nurture and stuff like this. And there was a, a wonderful book called The Magic Years, Sonia Freiberg. You ever have a chance to pick that up? And she she talks about about this is, this is written in the fifties about a, a family that had tried as much as they possibly could to keep their their kids away from violence and swords and guns and everything like that. And, and somehow their toddler boy decides to you know, start chopping things up with uh, with swords that he made out of nowhere. And I remember interviewing a couple of years ago. Uh, a woman who had twins, boy-girl twins, and she decided she was going to have everything absolutely gender-neutral. She was not going to expose them to anything. And she said to me, you know, she was just shocked one day when her her two-year-old or three-year-old daughter wraps up a toy truck in a blanket and, and rocks it to sleep. And when her, such a great line, when her, her son started chewing his toast into the shape of a gun. And I think there's something that's... It's not all Disney. I agree completely. Disney didn't create the preference; they tapped into it. And um, so, talk and about that a little bit. What what what's the biological component here? What's the biological component? Um, well, I've seen it in, explained in a few different ways. But one is what I was saying before, which is that there's a toddler stage, 
where kids gender identify. Right. Right. And and so, and so one of the ways that little girls can do it is through the this expression of pink and princess play, and it's really intense. Like I don't know how far down the rabbit hole your daughter went, but you know my daughter would not leave the house unless she was wearing something pink, something frilly, something princessy. She went through a stage where you know she would leave the house without a cape and this crown that she had made, oh, yeah. you know, and and because the age is a stubborn age. You know, you, you choose your battles and you try to figure it out. And at first I was resistant to it, but um, I did I did see that it was coming from deep inside her. This was not purely a marketing phenomenon of her walking into a store and wanting to buy things that were being, you know, uh, marketed to her. It was something deep inside her that she really loved. And yes, I, you know, there's, I think the, I think it's gender neutrality is a good thing to strive for, but it's also good to let people express themselves however however they want, um, young children and older children and all of us, right? Right. And well, so that's that's not, not the... limit not limit ourselves by expectations. Let's say my expectations were more, uh, you know, pro gender neutrality, but that's not how my daughter was, and I had to recognize that and just let her express herself as she wanted to be and um and and try to figure out the you know how well first of all when i when i started to read into it i saw that the consequences weren't really dire as i imagined because one of my fears was that the the princess obsession was um a signal that she might be associating with with things that might lead her down the wrong path, um, you know, if she's spending too much time thinking about the physical and the beauty ideal, um, and when money. adolescents, and well, for sure, for sure that. But I'm not even going to get to that, right? You know, at first it was more at first the fear that girls who focus more on the beauty ideal and try to conform to the beauty ideal end up having problems statistically higher problems with self-esteem and negative body image once they come into adolescence. But when I did start to read about the princess obsession, I, there was no correlation between little toddler girls who were princess obsessed and adolescent girls who had those problems. There, I mean, a lot of girls have those problems, right? But there was no indication that the princess play was an indication of something more important, um, more serious. But yes, the market, well, the marketing thing, I think the that is a general concern for all parents that we can't just buy our kids everything that they ask for, um, no matter how passionate they are about a subject. And, you know, with the princess obsession, of course, there were some um, stressful times in the supermarket where she wanted to buy the pink cereal and all that. But, uh, you know. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's so specific to the princess thing. It, it's true that it's, being marketed in a very aggressive way, but a lot of things are to kids. So as parents, that's just one of the limits and the, you know, the boundaries that you try to establish. Well, I do a lot of toy reviews and have, I skipped last year, but I've been going to the toy fair in New York for, for many years. And it's just, I mean, Lego has a whole line of, of girl oriented Lego sets. And it started off when they first started doing, it was a lot of pink, but then they also, they've changed the figures so that they look more human than the regular traditional kind of Lego figures. And then, but there's also, 
thanks to the Hunger Games, perhaps, and other kinds of things. There's pink bows and arrows and pink rifles and pink guns and pink nerf. And it's, uh, there's something about pink there. Mm-hmm. But it's good that they're expanding the definition. So yeah. there are pink bows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, there's no perfect answer. Like you could say, well, why does, why does the bow and arrow have to be pink? But on the other hand, if girls like pink, then, okay, so then also make the bow and arrow pink. <laughs> right, right. Um, Devorah yeah. Blacker is the author of The Feminist Guide to Raising a Little Princess, How to Raise a Girl Who's Authentic, Joyful, and Fearless, Even If She Refuses to Wear Anything But a Pink Tutu. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll, we're going to answer that question. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Devorah Blacker, who's the author of The Feminist Guide to Raising a Little Princess. All right, so let's talk about this question. About So, so for, you, you were relieved that the pink obsession, the princess obsession as a toddler is not going to lead to any horrifying consequences later on in life. Those will develop later, thanks to other advertisers, perhaps, uh, <laughs> besides Disney. But how do we begin to do what you the, the the thing that you struggled with which was how do you try to in, open their eyes a little bit without restricting what they can do well first of all you know one of the things i had to acknowledge when my little girl got into it was she was three at the time and besides setting limits for a child that young i'm not sure there's so much you can do but certainly as they get older you can start to talk to your kids about the messages they're receiving and how if you know that they've got to be alert about the messages the efforts to get them to spend money to get them not to be happy with themselves the way they are because that's kind of the undercurrent of advertising a lot of advertising and um and make them more savvy consumers so that they they can take their knowledge and their skepticism into their adolescent and young adult lives and, um, and make good choices because yeah, it just, it'll, it gets more intense as they get older in a way, even if it's not princesses anymore, but the effort to get them to just be dissatisfied, so mm-hmm. that they're going to spend money, um, uh, to make themselves feel more attractive or, you know, or have a better product or whatever it is. Right. Do you That's have, part of the role of the parent. Yeah. Do you have conversations, though, about the messages that are going on in the movies? And, and one of the ones I think that, that bothered me most of all, I think I was probably oblivious to some of the messaging going on, but the it was the uh, Little Mermaid where Ariel loses her ability to speak and she has no other way to attract the prince, what's his name, Eric, I think, Besides the beauty part of things, I mean, she, the, it just seems so awful in a way. To, I mean, it, it it completely took away any other possibility than that. Mm-hmm. And we, I started talking to the kids about that a little bit because they liked the movies, even though they didn't want to dress up as the characters. They liked the stories. They liked the animation and 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 that. But how do you begin to address things like that? And when do you begin to address those like that? That the, the, the you know, th- what does this mean to you as a kid? 
I think around age five, I started to talk to Mari about the plots of these movies, especially the earlier ones. Um, you know, I, I called them the Sleepy Trio, Cinderella, Snow White, and Sleeping Beauty. But I think we could put the Little Mermaid on that, that side of the fence because it was not a progressive movie in terms of the, the feminism and the message about, about girls and women. And I started to talk to her about how it used to be for for females and how the only choice that they had to improve their lot was through marriage once upon a time and um, and how that was unfair because they couldn't use their own resources and talents to to um, do something meaningful with their lives that was always about marriage and that really resonated with her from a very young age so I was happy about that you know she didn't she did not like that she did not think that was fair she knew there was something messed up about that. It didn't take away from her enjoyment of the movie. She still likes those movies, but she will talk about those subjects now. Um, and, you know, she knows it was no good back in the day. Um, as far as The Little Mermaid, I can't say I've discussed that plot with her. That was never such a favorite with her. So I haven't really addressed it. <laughs> but, yeah, The Little Mermaid is interesting because it was the first newer Disney princess movie after that those first three mm-hmm. that, that came out so long ago but it was before Disney had maybe you know the writers had a more conscious uh, had that consciousness that you know what we've got to make movies that that um, that are going to present a good model for young girls uh, which is what they've been doing the last few which is good but right. the Little Mermaid was before was right. before that consciousness set in among the Disney executives and the writers, I guess. You know, one thing I, I've always wondered uh, in talking to my kids as well and, and how other people who have boys deal with this is you know, boys will watch these movies too. And although the messages for girls are not the kinds of positive messages necessarily we would have, and you're, you're absolutely right about the, the way that things used to be and girls could only improve their lot that way, but the, the message in these movies to boys is the, the, the only way you're ever going to be attractive to somebody is to be a prince or to have a lot of money. And I think that's something that has had a, a very negative effect on boys growing up in the world as well, is that this this idea that that's the way people will rate you as a man is your income or your station in life. Absolutely. I would also just add that the you know we talk about princess perfect as a negative ideal, but there's also prince perfect because you know these none of these princes really had a a personality or flaws, you know, so they're not good examples for our sons either, because they think the one of the biggest takeaways that, you know, one of the biggest positive takeaways, let's say, um, to counteract this, this princess effect is to just teach our, our kids, they don't have to be perfect. They can be flawed people and um, they don't have to live up to these ideals. And that's def- definitely just as important for boys as it is for girls, because boys boys get into trouble too with that um, those unfair expectations placed on them. Yeah. So where? How old are your daughters now? So my son is ten, and my daughter is six. So she's still in it. She is still in it, but she has opened her heart to other passions. <laughs> she's very passionate about her guinea pig um, and animals. That's 
um, something we've been encouraging a lot. Uh, I have to admit, I would love for her to get into sports because everything I've read indicates that sports is a really positive influence for girls. So I don't want to force it on her. I just want to open up those possibilities. And so she's just starting, you know, to get into um, mostly running <laughs> right now more than organized sports, but that's okay. Um, so she still likes the princesses, but she likes other things too. And she likes other colors as well. <laughs> she likes all the colors of the rainbow, not just pink anymore. What do you think about the the new literature that's coming out with the very, very positive, in some ways are almost overly aggressive uh, princesses who are rejecting everything. Do you think there's still a place for the red fairy book and the blue fairy book and all those, the, the classic fairy tales? And Those fairy tales haven't gone away, and I don't see them going away anytime soon. I think they could be retold in more interesting ways, you know. Um that's a good question. I don't know. You know, I'm not the one who writes these scripts of what's going to be popular and what's not going to be popular. <laughs> Got to get uh, that job. <laughs> but I can, I, I see that these, there are just some things that are so um, deeply woven into our culture that they're not going away so quickly, you know, including those early fairy tales. So, I, they, yeah, they'll, they're going to have a place with us um, certainly in the near future. And um, I'm not sure what you mean by the, the princesses who, re the, who reject everything. Do you mean like the paper bag princess or something like that? Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of them. There, there's all, all these different ones where the, she, she's, the princess decides she's not going to go out with anybody or that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. It's funny. I've been, you know, we, we have read a few of those to my, my daughter, you know, and I don't, I, don't want, I don't want it to be negative towards boys and men either. Um, but it's good just to have like a, you know, it gives them an alternative view of what a princess could be, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know what, it's hard as a parent to, to let in only the exact right influences that you would approve of, because there are books that come home from the library at school with them. There are books sent by relatives. Um, and yeah. we read, you know, yeah. we read them all and it's, it's absolutely impossible to only allow words to, you know, come come in front of them that you pre-approved. Right. So I think it's more about discussing it. If something, if you know, if something comes up for you, talking about it, ask them what they think. Um, you know, if if you if you have an issue, it's okay to talk about it in an age-appropriate way. And um, I and I hope I'm not wrong. But in the end, I just don't want to take it all so seriously. And I just want to let a lot of, you know, I just want to let her experience her childhood um, and also figure a few things out for herself and just hopefully guide her in the right direction and yeah. give her the tools of love and resilience to, to cope in the future, I hope. Yeah, and then you can Trust start having, having conversations with her about the, the role of women in other societies where it's, uh, it's not a happy situation in That's a lot right. of places in the world. Devorah Blacker is the author of The Feminist Guide to Raising a Little Princess, How to Raise a Girl Who's Authentic, Joyful, and Fearless, Even If She Refuses to Wear Anything But a Pink Tutu. Devorah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2. There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. 
I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Bront, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, back when I was in high school, all I wanted was to be independent. I wanted more responsibility, a job so I could have my own spending money, and I was obsessed with getting a girlfriend. Despite my parents' warnings, I experimented with drinking alcohol and, well, a few other things. I'm asking because my two teens have zero interest in any of that, and as far as I can tell, neither do their friends. Is there something different about teens today, or am I imagining things? Unfortunately, you're not imagining. Teens and young adults these days are very different than we were at their age and when we were doing many of the things you described. San Diego State University researcher Jean Twangy and her Bryn Mawr colleague Hee-Jung Park just published a study that confirmed what a lot of us have long suspected. Compared to their parents and grandparents, today's young people are much less mature, much less interested in taking on the trappings of adulthood, more on that in just a sec, and are content to be dependent on their parents for far longer. The quest for independence starts very early. Remember back when your kids were two and wanted to do everything themselves, and when they were three or four and wanted to do everything we did, whether it was talking on the phone, working on the computer, or washing dishes? That process of seeking independence and engaging in adult-like activities continues through adolescence and, theoretically at least, ends at actual adulthood. But as Twangy and Park found, today's teens are in no hurry to grow up. Their study looked at teenage behavior going back as far as the middle to late 1970s and up to 2016. Let me give you a couple of examples. From 1976 to 79, 76% of 12th graders were earning at least some money. From 1990 to 94, that number had dropped a little, to 72%. But from 2010 to 2016, only 55% of teens were earning money on their own. In the 1970s, 88% of 12th graders had a driver's license, 84% in the 1990s. Today, it's just 73%. In the early 1990s, 72% of 10th graders and 84% of 12th graders had ever had a date. Today, it's only 57% of 10th graders and 63% of 12th graders have ever dated. In the 90s, 81% of 12th graders, 72% of 10th graders, and 56% of 8th graders had tried alcohol. Today, those numbers have dropped to 67%, 51%, and 29%, respectively, which is a good thing in my view. It's nice to see those numbers dropping. Over that same time period, even college-age and post-college-age young people are refraining from drinking, from 92% in the 90s to 87% today. Today's teens are less likely than those 20 years ago to go out without their parents, to go out on dates, or to have sex. The big question, of course, is why is this happening? I think some of the decline, particularly in dating and going out without parents, is the result of smartphones and social media. 
With all the technology that's available, today's teens may actually be communicating with each other more than we did at their age. Although, if your goal is to have sex, there's really no substitute for an in-person communication. But we can't blame smartphones for everything. As Twangy and Park write, it's unclear how Internet use could cause teens to work less and drink alcohol less. I also put some of the blame on parents. Because we're having children later and we're having fewer of them, we try to protect our investment by doing things for them, like giving them money instead of expecting them to earn their own, and driving them everywhere they need to go instead of expecting them to get a license, pay for their own insurance, and drive themselves. Given that, it makes sense to stay young for as long as possible, doesn't it? If you've got a question or a comment for us, please do send it over. You can do that through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Till then, I'm Armand Brott. Hey, but don't go yet, because as you know, there is a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Music is a bridge between the material and the spiritual. My name is Harvey Lauer, and I'm 82. As a blind person, you have to be aware that nobody can tell you what you can or can't do. You really have to try things. My folks got me a little radio in 1940, and that was the best Christmas present I ever got. When I was 11 years old is when I started to uh, play music, play the piano, and then the accordion, and then the cello. My wife, who was also blind, was a good cook. When she died, that's when I started Meals on Wheels. America, let's do lunch. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Single mothers may have been something of a rarity in the past, but today 40% of babies are born to unmarried women. Yet single mothers continue to face myriad unique challenges. As most of them will tell you, financial pressures, mom guilt, and the struggle to find work-life balance greatly intensify when they're forced to raise children on their own. My guest for this part of the show, Emma Johnson, has experienced these hardships firsthand. Searching for the advice she needed to navigate her new life as a single professional woman and parent, she discovered that there was very little sage wisdom available. In response, she launched a popular blog called WealthySingleMommy.com to speak to other women who, like herself, wanted to not just survive but thrive as single moms. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about a lot of the issues that single moms face. We're talking about things like finding a support network, your single mom identity, what being a kick-ass single mom means, actually. She's got information on getting out of debt, on estate planning, on college savings, and, of course, sex and dating. So if you're a single mom or you know one, and who doesn't these days, 
Stick around. You're not going to want to miss this show. I'm Armand Brock. We'll dive in right after this. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life. Young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Emma Johnson, who's the author of The Kick-Ass Single Mom, Be Financially Independent, Discover Your Sexiest Self, and Raise Fabulous Happy Children. Emma, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. You've really set up a, a difficult challenge there. Plus, you've got the, the way that the mom's head is inside the O of mom. It looks like a halo. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, needlessly, I'm the writer, not the designer. Yeah, no, I mean it. Just the the whole thing. It's it sets up this incredibly high standard. How can anybody live up to that? Well, that's that's the, the goal. It's supposed to be. I thought this was a positive parenting show. So it's it's <laughs> helping us all. We're all we're all dealing with the realities of life, right? Myself included. But that's what we all want, right? We want we want to be fulfilled in our careers and to have our own money and to have great romantic lives. I mean, these are I've been working in the single mom space for more than five years now through my blog, Wealthy Single Bombing. And these are just the big challenges that I found that moms were facing, that the world's telling us that we're going to be broke, that we're going to be lonely romantically, and that our kids are going to be messed up. And we just know that's not the case. Do we? I mean, do well, do, do people really know that? that? Or because there seems to be, there's a lot of guilt out there. I mean, there's 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 so much guilt with with mothers who are in intact relationships about that they're not doing enough, and it just seems like, I mean, I've been a single dad for many years, and, like, you know, it's hard enough to do it by yourself, and it's it's doubly hard to do it alone. Well, it can be, unless uh, you're not in a great relationship. I mean, it's easier to do alone than it is in a bad marriage. I mean, that's, that's definitely what I've found, and, there, and that's what the science shows. I mean, the science shows that divorce or single parenthood by itself is not the indicator for, let's say, messed up kids. It's poverty. It's fatherlessness. It's the social support of the family. Um, there's lots of other factors. Just parenting solo in and of itself is not the best. Okay. All right, so let's let's talk about money since you mentioned that first. What is it that is in our heads that single mothers all of a sudden become poverty-stricken? I mean, certainly there's some. Right. There's going to be some guys who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing if there is child support involved. But at this point in in the 21st century, so many single mothers or so many mothers in general are completely self-sufficient financially. So what happens? So what happens? Well, like we're in a time of quickly changing gender roles, uh, especially when it comes to money. I think it all really comes down to money. We're never going to close the pay gap. We're never going to have real equality. We're never going to stop talking about all these sexual assault uh, situations that are just completely monopolizing the headlines for the last couple of months until women are financially equal with men. And I have a belief that a lot of this can be happening in family court. I mean, the numbers of, of separated families, we'll call them separated families, because 
you know, the majority of single-parent households are not um, as a result of divorce. It's uh, young moms, young families, couples having kids outside of wedlock. So when we're talking about money, um, things are changing very quickly. We're seeing a lot of changes in family courts, divorce courts. Let's start with alimony. I mean, 40, 50 years ago when we started having divorce surges in the United States, women didn't have financial power. Women had so few economic opportunities. I mean, women could not even get credit cards in their own name until 1973. It was a completely different era than it is today. And while we have a lot of work to do in gender equality, women can earn their own living. Mothers can earn their own living. And alimony presumption or the presumption that women should be dependent on men financially for the rest of their lives, it's just not only is it dated and not relevant anymore, it holds women back. And that is really my goal, for women to not only be changing the behaviors, but first changing their expectations of themselves and people around them. But then what happens with the kids, right? So women are working and earning. Most majority of women are, and certainly the vast majority of unmarried moms are. But what happens with the kids? Who's taking care of the kids? Well, we need to be sharing the care responsibility, right? We need to be really prioritizing shared parenting and the presumption that both parents are equally responsible for the hours, the time that it takes to raise children. And thankfully, thanks to some amazing advocates, uh, that is becoming more and more common. Uh, it's becoming the presumption in family courts, and that is changing the economics. They're completely intertwined, parenting time and money. Mm-hmm. And when you have two homes where both parents are equally responsible for caring for the kids, they both have to have about the same amount of real estate. They're both paying the utility bill. They're both paying for food. And then you divvy up things like the uh, child care expenses and health insurance and sports and all the extracurriculars that are, of course, expensive out-of-pocket expenses. But that's not child support, right? That's something else. That's the extras, as we call them. So it completely changes the mentality about what it takes to be a separated family, and it's about gender equality. Well, don't you think that also puts a little bit of weight onto the mothers to actively encourage the dad to get involved because the— the way that the courts are still set up, there's still there, there is getting to be more of a presumption of shared custody, or shared parenting time, or whatever whatever you'd like to call it, depending on where you are. It's a different thing, but a lot of guys feel that they're excluded uh, in yeah. in the case of divorce, and a lot of moms say, you know, either they're they're sort of joking a lot of times, but they really aren't. But oh, I don't think he can handle this, and and it's there. You don't get to say just because you had. Bore the child, lived in your body, maybe nursed the child, you are not presumed to be the better parent. We really have to, and it's tough. I mean, as a mom, I know I felt like the better parent. I got, I was went through a divorce, and my 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 youngest was being born in the middle of my divorce, and I was nursing, and it was so traumatic. And I was like, what do you mean you're going to take these kids overnight? And the overnight didn't happen for a while because the babies were so small. But I was like could not get my head around the idea that somebody else was going to be my equal parent. I was the mommy, right? They needed me. But I have come a long way, and my parenting situation has come a long way. And I can tell you that I am not the better parent because I am a mom, and we cannot have gender equality in this. And we know there's so much research. There's 55 peer-reviewed studies that show that shared parenting, again, we define shared parenting as approximately equal time with both parents, 40% right. minimum time. Right. And we're living in the real world, right? Like people have work, people go on vacation. Like the kid, 
like we're living in the real world. Like we don't want people to be have rigid 50 50, right? We have, we're encouraging flexibility. Yeah. But when they have shared parenting, that is what is best for kids, including in high conflict families, couples. That's what's remarkable to me, including in high conflict situations. It is still best for kids when they have equal access to both parents. All right. So, how do you get the parents to go along with this kind of a thing? Because there still is in the, the divorce industry, if you want to call it, or the separation industry, there's still going to be lawyers involved. And there there are a lot more people who now are doing collaborative divorce where the, you'll have one lawyer will be not exactly representing both the people, but they'll be working together towards coming up with something that works, the kind of thing that you're talking about, have co-parenting mm-hmm. where, where people are looking for the putting their differences aside and they're moving on the best interest of the child. But how do you explain that to a mom or a dad for that matter, but we are talking about moms, uh, that that's in the best interest of your child, even though you might be really angry at the other person for doing whatever it is that he did. Right, and it's, it's tough. I mean, I really think what's proven, there's a few states that are real leaders in the shared parenting case, Arizona being one of them, and it really, it really just starts in the family courts where people walk in and it kind of doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what each parent assumes. It's like, okay, you're splitting up. Uh, there's, you know, we presume that both parents are safe. Like, that's the presumption, right? If there's no abuse cases. That We presume that fathers are not abusing their children. Right, which is a nice the, thing. The, yeah, and it's too bad that we have to go there, but that is the presumption. Right. And it's shared. And it might be upsetting, but you know what? We're talking about a social revolution here, and that is painful. It's hard, but here's what happens. And I and again, I am telling you, I when I wrote about this in my book, The Kick Ass of Mama, I mean, I literally it was so traumatic for me when I thought about giving up this time with my kids. I got out a calculator. I literally got out a calculator and wanted to count the number of hours I would be with my kid and to try to reconcile this. But fast forward, not too much time and the number one fight that I had with my ex husband for years is trying to get him to take the kids more. <laughs> because guess what? Parenting, moms listening to this, parenting is exhausting, and it is taxing. And if you can feel like you have somebody else to take the kids' hours, to be flexible. So fast forward today, my shared parenting looks like I actually still have the kids the majority of the time, and the reasons for that are lengthy. But I have, like, for example... I have been traveling a lot for work. Normally I don't. For the last few months launching this book, I've been traveling a ton. I can call my ex-husband. He takes the kids. Yep. A couple of years ago, I would be hiring babysitters. I would be flying in right. relatives. I would be juggling and struggling, and or I would be turning down professional opportunities and compromising my career and my financial prospects. Yep. Instead, <clears throat> he takes them. And you know what? He has a life, too. He has a career with erratic hours, and when those hours he has the kids, he calls his girlfriend, and she comes and helps get the kids to school in the morning. Because you know what? Historically, we have not been raising children alone in a silo. We have whole, whole communities raising children. And it, the more people involved and the more loving people involved that we can have in our kids' lives, it's better for everyone. Then I can go and travel. I can feel excited about my career, and that's great for my kids. I can go and have a romantic life. I can go to the gym. I can commu- volunteer my community be this whole dynamic woman, and I'm filled up. I'm a great role model for my kids. They go and spend time with their loving father and all the things that he brings into their lives. Right. And it's so good for right. everybody. 
Emma Johnson's the author of the kick-ass single mom, Be Financially Independent, Discover Your Sexiest Self, and Raise Fabulous Happy Children. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Emma. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food. We've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food. Because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just listening or just joining us, uh, we're talking with Emma Johnson, who's the author of The Kick-Ass Single Mom. I want to have you get into some of the, the specifics. We talked about uh, shared parenting time. We talked about money. Um, you have some items in, your, in, in the book that you talk about, estate planning for single moms, college savings for single moms. Let's talk a little bit about some, some of those budgeting items that may be difficult. I mean, they're, they're difficult under the best of circumstances. And how do you do it on, on one income? Well, yeah, so like estate planning, for example, that's a really great one. I mean, nobody wants to deal with estate planning. Writing your will, uh, next of kin. I mean, these are just like the unpleasantries of life. And you know, I, fact, I'm a financial journalist, and I write about the importance of having an estate plan, and I am guilty of avoiding mine for many years because it is so painful, and I think it can often be taken up to an especially uncomfortable level when you have a non-traditional family. And and it's expensive, to your question. It can be very expensive. I happened to be a fan of Legal Zoom, which is an online uh, service, and it was great. I did it, and it, I think it cost me about 300 bucks. and they walked me through, and there was lawyers betting it on their side, and they got involved, and we went back and forth. They found some things that I missed, but the real part of it was not the 300 bucks. It was talking through uncomfortable things. The deal is, is that since my kid's dad is involved, he gets the kid, something happens to me. Right, and then it's about managing the estate and naming somebody to my uh, be the trustee of my estate. So it is so important. You know, it is just such a gift to your children to get these things tidied up. One, you you know you're supposed to do it. So I'm a big fan of you brought up guilt. Get all that negative crap in your head and get it out by taking care of it. Get that off of your mind. And then it's a, it's a gift, you know, God forbid something happens to you, you're giving that to your kids. But the other part of it is when your kids are old enough to understand these things, by you being able to look them in the eye and say, you know, I've got this all squared away, that is a gift to them. So, you know, whether, even if they're adults and maybe there isn't, you're not giving them a lot of money, which I think is great. I don't think you should go enjoy your money and spend it how you want. I don't think handing down big chunks of money is really good for anyone. That's my personal opinion. But to say that, you know what, this is not going to go to uh, uh, the court system. This is not going to go to a lawyer. I have taken care of it. It frees our children, and what a beautiful gift. All right, let's skip ahead to dating. I want to make sure we've got plenty of time for that one. That, that's something I know that uh, a lot of guys feel uneasy about diving into those waters again, partly because they don't want to have to deal with their kid, you know, introducing people to their kids and partly because it's just too exhausting. But 
what do you tell moms about about dating? When is it okay? When when do you introduce the kids? How do you even go about meeting people that will have some clue about that? I remember as a, as a single dad myself, you know, you meet people who don't have kids, and there's something nice about that, but there's also something a little scary <laughs> about that. Well, it just depends for everyone. I I have dated a ton since my divorce. I've been unmarried now for oh seven eight years. It took me a good year and a half to really get into dating. I wasn't ready for a while. Um, and then I had a couple serious, I've, I'm in a serious relationship now, but I, there was a bunch of years in there where I just really just dated, just dated. I live in New York City and I found it really fun to date in New York City. I've never been single New York. But you know what? Date. Go and date. You are a romantic person that is a part of your person, the essence of you. And the idea that you say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to date because I need to focus only on my children or... It is, one, it is putting so much responsibility on your kids to fill you up. Uh, I remember years ago reading, this was even before I came a single mom, I read this book called Emotional Incest. And it just related to some challenges I was dealing with, like going dealing with my own childhood. I was raised by a single mom. And there's a whole subchapter in there that talks about single parent families. It's not about single families, single parent families. This book is called Emotional Incest. But it says, you know, emotional incest, meaning that, you know, there's maybe no physical abuse or sexual abuse going on in a parent-child relationship, but you're putting your child in an adult role and fulfilling adult needs in the parent. So and this can happen in any family configuration whatsoever, but it pointed out that single-parent families are especially prone to this. This especially that is not saying all or every, but I would urge moms and dads to be cognizant of this because if you don't have a rich emotional companionship life, a, a romantic partner, romantic life, deep and many personal friendships, you're going to need to get that filled somewhere and your kids are your closest proximity. So that I can very much understand why that is a risk. So the idea that the society tells moms when you become a single mom, however you get there, you basically have two options according to our world. One is that you become celibate, which is a total proc because you're an adult woman and you are a sexual person. Or two, you hurry up and get married again because your kids deserve, like, a whole family. Again, I reject that. Both of those are completely sexist notions. You can go and date however you want. You are totally free. We're very comfortable in our culture for single, childless people to go and date and have multiple romantic partners, multiple sexual partners, live with people outside of marriage. We're very comfortable with that, and we have been for decades. But women who are our mothers happen to be subject to these very old traditional models that I just reject. If you want to go have a free life, you can do that. And I also reject the idea that you need to be deeply committed to somebody before your kids can meet them. I grew up, again, with a single mom, and, you know, I have great memories of her going on dates. This was back in the 80s. And it was a different dating culture then. Like now when I was dating more casually, I almost always meet guys out, out because I meet them online. That's just a big dating culture today versus 30 years ago. But my mom, these guys would come over and they'd bring her flowers. Can you imagine this? They'd bring her flowers like on a first <laughs> date. That sounds so and quaint. Yeah. Like, my mom would be all dressed up and she'd be like all giddy and cute. And like, I've ne- like in hindsight, like I've never seen her that happy in the 41 years that I've known her. 
And the guys would come over, and the babysitter would be there. And it was, like, this really positive thing. And sometimes she would get involved with them for a while, and, like, they'd stay over, and they'd often be single dads, and the kids would all go, like, to the movies. And it was just, like, these adults fumbling through dating as we all fumble through dating, no matter if you're 15 years old or 50 years old. And it was just normal and positive. And it's what greater gift can we give our children than to be honest and modeling healthy dating behavior because they're going to be dating sooner or later. They might already be dating. They might be teenagers. Wow. That's pretty good advice. I mean, that you got to get out there. It's just you're, you're not doing yourself any favors, or, or the kids for that matter, if you're just going to be moping around being miserable. Yeah. Or being shame, ashamed and lying. I mean, people lie all the time. Like, they tell their kids they're not dating, like, they're going out with a friend or going to a business meeting, or worse, sneaking guys in after they think the kids are asleep. Don't do that. Like, it's your kids' <laughs> home, too. They all, it's very common. But well, they'll wake up in the middle of the night, and they'll, you know, that, that one time your child who's, who never gets up in the middle of the night, then that's the night they get up, and then it just becomes more confusing, and you have to dig your way out of a big hole later. Yeah. Well, it's just lies. You know, even if they don't catch an act, you're telling lies, and it's it's creating shame around dating and sex, and that is really the bigger message. Like, that is what's going on in this country right now. Right. All of a sudden, we're having honest conversations about sex and gender. So be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Well, but there still needs to be some sort of discretion. I mean, I understand that you may not want to wait until you're deeply, deeply committed, but there's there should be, it seems to me, some keeping the kids out of it. Right. I mean, you don't want to put the kids in the middle of your, your divorce or having them send messages back and forth, and you want them to be able to believe that they're going to have some stability in their life. That's right. That's right. You don't subject your kids. To the, I mean, because, you know, you're, you've been single for a while. Like, romance is tumultuous. It's, I think especially if you're coming out of divorce, you're so vulnerable and blah. Yeah, your kids are not your bartender. Like, don't – it's not – first of all – because it's and this, the real the real challenge is getting people to understand what dating is. Dating is not looking for a new spouse. You already had a spouse. That probably didn't work out so great. You're dating. You're going out and spending time with hopefully a nice person, having a nice time, seeing if there's a romantic connection, enjoying yourself. You're dating. It's not about introducing men like this is your new dad or this guy is going to be moving in or, you know, indulging your kids in the yep. ups and downs of the romance or God forbid your sex life. Again, your kids are not your bartender. Emma Johnson's the author of The Kick-Ass Single Mom, Be Financially Independent, Discover Your Sexiest Self, and Raise Fabulous Happy Children. And she's also the creator of Wealthy Single Mommy, all one word, dot com. Emma, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Oh, this was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.